Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime podcast. I'm Aryan, your host for this episode, and I'm Ashwara. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features. We'd also like to thank our latest patrons, Dhyaneshwari Katkar, Tushar Arya, Rahul Yelena. Thank you all for all your support in running this podcast. One bathtub, three dead bodies, a marriage in turmoil and a feverish lover. The house on 20 Grass Street Close, Bridgman Downs, Queensland, Australia holds all the answers. On 22nd April 2003, the police are summoned to decrypt this mystery. Clues lay scattered around the residence, but there's less physical evidence that awaits them. The people evidence comes first. A debaucherous father, a complicit mother, and the vendetta of their enemies in Fiji stand in contrast to the wrath of one man, Max Sika. Who killed Neelma Singh, Kunal Singh and Siddhi Singh? Who is behind Queensland's largest ever investigation that some till date question if it led to a satisfactory answer? Find out in part 2 of the Singh Seeker triple murder. Okay, Aran. So Oppenheimer and Barbie both just released. The world is mm-hmm. going crazy. Yet here I am, and what I'm looking forward to the most is closure. Is part two of this episode. Mm-hmm. Is whatever the hell happened in the Singh residence? The part of me that skips to the last page of a novel is the same part of me that's tempted to scroll through the script and get the answers. Steady, right now. steady your horses. <laughs> steady, steady there for a second. Otherwise, <laughs> listeners would you know forward to the last five minutes of the episode. Oh no no I will it's going to be worth it I know that but before you dive in Aryan let me do some housekeeping for our listeners Absolutely you know in cases like these especially where there are convoluted family trees that can be confusing yep. if you can retrace that it would be really helpful So getting right into it as the title of the series suggests there are two families in question the Singhs and the Sikas The Singhs are Indo-Fijian immigrants that live in Brisbane Vijay Singh, an auto part import export guy, is the father. Shirley Singh, a massage therapist, is the mom. They have four kids. The eldest, Sonia Pathak, is married and doesn't live with the family anymore, although she lives in close proximity. Then you have our female protagonist, Neelma, 24 at the time of her death. She's an aspiring air hostess. Her younger brother Kunal is 19 and their youngest sister Siddhi is just 12. Now this Singh clan is affiliated with another clan an Italian clan through neighborly ties which of course transformed into all kinds of ties sexual arch nemesis etc the sikas are immigrants from naples in italy the family of 5 is made up of carlo sika and anna sika and their kids claudio rosan and their youngest massimo dearly known as max 
you nailed the family tree now Correct. where did i leave you off on part 1 april 22nd 2003 max stumbles across the corpses of his beloved and her siblings he calls the authorities but what next what happened then yes i got three dead bodies in a bathtub do you need an ambulance <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been here sir <laughs> At 2:33 p.m. the call goes out to the emergency responders. "Quote, I've got 3 dead bodies in a bathtub." Remember this, 3 dead bodies. This innocent statement will prove pivotal as a building block in the prosecution's case. The authorities scramble. Not withstanding an uncharacteristic delay by the Aussie authorities, the cops and the medical team are at the Bridgman Downs residence in 20 minutes. As they pull in, a tormented Max can be seen by the driveway, clenching his hair and walking around frantically. He looks like a helpless man whose lover died in a bathtub. He sits on the sink's front lawn sporting a blue sports jacket, crying as he hugs his son. Just days ago, he had received healing Hindu prayers from Neelma for his terminal cancer diagnosis. He perhaps wished he could pass on those prayers to her, but at this point, it was too late for divine intervention being the first on the scene of crime his initial testimony would prove necessary to have a starting point for the police so the police asked him what happened take us through your discovery what did you see quote i saw the dog sniffing at the blood on the floor i followed the blood i thought i would find her on the floor end quote In the previous episode Ashwara we played you a snippet of Max's interview from 2003. Admittedly yep. the quality was poor and his thick Aussie accent surely didn't help. But unfortunately that's the only full length interview available in the form of a re-uploaded VHS tape which explains its quality. For those interested though the full interview is linked in the show notes. But essentially in the interview he detailed in that particular snippet his retelling of the discovery. When he entered the bathroom and walked over to the bathtub, he saw it covered with sheets and blankets. Blood was everywhere. Quote, I lifted the blanket and saw a hand. Nim's hand touched mine. It was cold and wrinkly. But Neelmaur, as he called her Nim's, wasn't the only lifeless body laying in the tub. Stacked in between sheets, blankets and a dense brownish water were two other bodies the police got from max what they had to for the time being with no one left to question other than max's kids and niece the investigation began the forensic route find evidence collect evidence catalog evidence senior constable anthony green and forensic officer fiona mcdonnell were well aware that this was no ordinary predicament facing them this wasn't a gang infested or violence ridden community it was a posh and peaceful neighborhood Three dead bodies with no plausible explanation wasn't a common occurrence to say the least. The cops began scouring for details. Two things were apparent at first glance. A, the home wasn't broken into, and B, things were missing from the Singh household. So, as for A, we know the house wasn't broken into since the alarm hadn't gone off, nor were there any signs of forced entry. More often than not, such situations indicate that the perpetrator was in the know-how of the Singhs. Yep. More likely than not, he or she was led into the residence. But secondly, and arguably more importantly, was the fact that a theft had occurred. 
It wasn't so much the act of the theft that was pertinent, but rather the objects of the theft. The burglar, whosoever it may be, focused on Neelma's possessions. The Brisbane Times reported that Neelma's jewellery was amiss. This included a lover's locket, which had both hers and Sika's photos, along with four pairs of gold earrings, bracelets, and a photo of Max from a bedroom mirror. Hmm. But the most important thing missing, however, wasn't one whose value could be measured in monetary terms. You could get it at any Barnes & Noble bookstore around the corner. It was a diary. A diary in which Neelma kept close track of her innermost thoughts, her secrets, and those of her lovers. That diary could possibly contain the answers to what had befallen its author, but Dear Diary was nowhere to be found. What an incredibly odd choice of items to steal, Aran. Odd to the extent that I'm sure everyone's thinking, hmm, could this possibly be Max? But these objects are odd to the extent that it makes me wonder, could he be so obvious so as to steal these items? I mean, Ashwara, the murderer put in no effort to make it seem like a burglary exactly. gone wrong, right? Usually we have yeah. these elaborate schemes. They should have, you know, whoever uh, committed the murder should have at least thrown things around, stolen from the parents' bedroom, stolen some extra the things, cops yeah, somehow, exactly. yeah. But their paltry effort was immediately uncovered by you, by the listeners and the police alike. There's no way this was a burglary. If anything, the stolen items were also part of the conniving scheme. Perhaps the diary contained indicting details. Perhaps it included details of the abuse she faced by her father, his many mistresses, her desire to have him, quote, beaten. Or perhaps it included, like you suggested, a whole different set of facts. Perhaps the pages didn't reflect an aggrieved daughter, instead an aggrieved lover, an aggrieved friend, an aggrieved girlfriend. Meanwhile, Senior Constable Anthony Green was one of the first to be in the bathroom, the scene of the crime. The white bathtub would struggle to fit one full human being, let alone three. But on first glance, there were no humans, just sheets, hordes and hordes. To be precise, that small white bathtub had in it, quote, three quilts, Two blankets, two fitted sheets, four pillows, three towels, one mat, and one jumper, end quote. Shimmied between all that bedwear were the bodies. Two corpses. Two victims, Constable Green mulled as he left the bathroom. That's all he saw. So do we have any idea why so many sheets? Like we know putting sheets on top of these dead bodies doesn't necessarily help hide dead bodies because you can smell things. There's blood everywhere as described by Max. So was this an attempt to hide the bodies at all? It wasn't an attempt to hide the bodies, but instead to hide the evidence. Because in the bathtub was something Hmm. known as bleach. And now we'll get to some of the properties Ah. of bleach, but it (laughs) does certainly help in covering up a crime. But we'll get to this. But at the moment, what is surprising is that Constable Green only saw two bodies. In the fiendish and murky brown water with heaps of clothes stacked, only the bodies of Neelma and Kunal were protruding through all the linen. Constable Green didn't see Siddhi's 12-year-old corpse buried under her siblings. But when gathering Max's testimony, he was informed that the witness hadn't seen two but three dead bodies. How could that be, Green wondered. Max insisted that Neelma, Kunal and Siddhi were dead, something which at first glance the attending officer had completely missed. In no time, 
Constable Green was back in the sordid bathroom, as haunting, if not more, as his previous visit, with the possibility of another victim looming over him. Upon prodding the lifeless bodies in wet linen, Green confirmed Max's claim. There were, in fact, three dead. Wow. The shock of another victim might have captured his imagination, but only for a fraction of a second. He was bewildered that he had missed a whole body while first inspecting the scene. Did he need to get his eyes checked or did Max have X-ray vision? It was nearly impossible to spot the three corpses from the original configuration of the bath. Unless someone poked and moved around the contents of the tub, they'd be unable to distinguish all that was in there. How in the world did Max know? As soon as that question must have arisen in Green's mind, it was shortly followed by, who in God's good world even is Max? Who is Masimo Sika? The officer input his legal name to the police record inventory, hoping to yield some clues. Instead of clues, he got a case file so large his mobile data wouldn't be sufficient to download it. Massimo Max Sika was no stranger to the police. He had a history. A long history. One that was only about to get longer. Max was in his mother's womb when Carlo Sica had decided to up and move his family from Naples to Sydney in 1970. Apparently, Carlo's decision to immigrate to Australia was unilateral. Anna wasn't conferred with, and even if she was, her appeals were ignored. Quote, I don't want to come. It was Carlo who wanted to, she declared in an interview. Anna was merely 21 years old when pregnant with Max. The young mother-to-be again didn't want the inevitable turbulence that accompanies immigration. And it wasn't like they were immigrating within Europe. This was Australia, a landmass diametrically opposite on the globe to Italy. Aran, if she bore Max at 21, when the hell did she give birth to her two other kids. I wondered the same thing, Ishwara, and I couldn't find specifics, but a back-of-the-envelope calculation suggests that if Anna in quick succession had all three kids within the conventional rules of obstetrics and gynecology, <laughs> she must have given birth to Claudio around the age of 17 to 19. Definitely yeah. a young mother, and perhaps that explains in part the happenings in the Sika household, the turbulence that I'll shortly get to. Max was the only seeker to be born an Australian. The running joke in the family was that he was, quote, made in Italy, but born in Australia. In later years, they relocated to Brisbane, but initially they moved to NSW, a doubly true acronym that stands for New South Wales, as well as not safe for work. It is in fact because rural parts of New South Wales proved difficult to open pizza franchises owing to rowdy customers that the Sika decided to shift to the outskirts of Brisbane. In the first decade of their arrival in Australia, from 1970 to 1977, they ran a pizzeria in Wollongong. But Anna hated it. She hated the people, hated the culture and hated her rowdy customers. That's interesting. For those of you that don't know, I've actually lived in Australia for a substantial part of my early childhood, I would say. And Mm. I've been to Wollongong and I think it's absolutely beautiful. I visited there a second time as well. Um, A lot of pictures on my Instagram from a couple of years ago are from Wollongong just because of how pretty their skies were and how many rainbows Mm. there were in the sky. So I just remember it so differently that it's interesting to hear someone else feel that way about it. Yeah, clearly you weren't running an Italian pizzeria. pizzeria, Yeah, I guess not. (laughs) 
<laughs> but according to Anna, there were quote so many drunken people, ugly behavior, always us Oof. calling police because of trouble. End quote. Little did she know that in the years to come, her cute and cuddly made in Italy and born in Australia Max was to be the reason of many such calls to the police, even before he had ever met Nilma. Max was born into a typical Italian household. Italian loyalty and pride coursed through their blood. Italian families, much like Indian families, have a sense of tradition and orthodoxy. Anna didn't want to move to Italy, but she heeded to her husband. She disliked Wollongong, but heeded to her husband. And then there were times she probably didn't like her husband, but she continued to heed to her husband, even when he became violent. To recall a line from the previous episode, where there is a crime, not too far away is a broken household, a fraught childhood, and a troubled kid. If Neelma's story fits this archetype, so does Max's. Max had a less than normal childhood. Max and his father had a fraught relationship. Carlo was prone to violence and his kids were often at his behest. The tense cord of friction between father and son tore apart because of what happened in 1975. At the age of five, Max was witness to his father's most extreme bout of anger. An anger not limited to words, not even limited to hands and legs, but one that escalated to a firearm. In a flash of fury, the young father threatened to kill himself and his family as he waded around a gun. Max recalls that his mother ushered all the kids into a room and locked her husband outside. Infuriated, he shot bullets through the door. The kids were unharmed, at least physically. The psychological scars never fully disappeared, according to Max. And this wasn't the only time Carlo had picked up a gun. Years later, another pang of anger and resentment compelled him to point the gun, this time at himself. He came close to death but narrowly escaped as his family begged him not to. He suffered minor injuries but survived. The toll of a toxic household such as this one only amplified when Anna resolved to repack and move back to her home country. She had had enough of Australia. Unlike her husband and kids, she barely spoke English. Australia just didn't feel like home. And with the ensuing turbulence within her family, the comfort she wanted in community was also lacking. She was adamant about moving back to Italy. And so they did, in 1981. Anna might have found the community she was yearning for, but she seemed to have forgotten an adage she herself used, that Max might have been made in Italy, but he was born in Australia. Consequently, the kid was more Aussie than he could ever be Italiano. The disparity haunted the 11-year-old. He was unable to adjust to his native country, its traditions, and more importantly, its systems. Australian schooling was significantly different and lenient than Italy. The culture shock paralyzed Max. He was unable to perform well in school, make friends, or even acclimatize. He described the schools there as authoritarian. Perhaps because of this, and maybe because of other reasons, the Sikha's prodigal return to Naples was short-lived. Within two years, it dawned on them that life was better in Australia, or at the very least had the potential to be. To Max's great satisfaction, the family re-immigrated, if that's even a word, to Australia in 1983. 
I don't I've thought about this about my own childhood for a very very long time as children who move around a lot for whatever reason either they're immigrants uh, and they've moved around between their native country and the one they they immigrated to or army children like myself who within their own country move around a lot I've always felt that because nothing is constant in our lives around us it's not our friends not our schools not the languages we're learning the only constant we need and that's absolutely necessary for us to have good healthy stable lives is the constant of a family and i think that's what was stripped away from max as well great he, point neither was his environment constant for him he was moving around and moving around so tumultuously for not positive reasons his entire family life was not a constant either his parents were incapable of giving him the constant love that is necessary mm-hmm. to maintain a healthy childhood in a moving environment like this perhaps ashwarya and you make a great point but perhaps to inculcate a better family setup this mm-hmm. time when they moved back they didn't move to wollongong where uh, mm-hmm. which was not a nice neighborhood according to anna mm-hmm. but they moved rather to brisbane um max completed his high school education from runcorn state high school in 1987 academically he was an average student but he harbored great ambitions he didn't view himself as average instead he pinned his lack of success on his parents who insisted he stay in the family business and help out with the pizzeria instead of going to university max spent the majority of his time helping out with the restaurant situated on ashgrove in brisbane he claims this prevented him from studying but for all his complaining and externalizing blame it's not like the little time he did have at his disposal was invested into studying instead it was channeled into delinquency also known as straight up crime sometime in the early 90s around the age of 21 max joined some of his high school mates on a crime rampage clad in gloves and balaclavas the gang of youths would have a police radio on at nights they would then disable the suburban power grid so that the security alarms would turn off in the houses and then proceeded to break into oh homes i should have break-ins for money is although illegal and wrong still understandable right, right. one could argue it's for the money But this what is systemic mass breaking in like that's what's worse Ashwarya, to me. worse what what worried me was the nature of the other crimes he engaged in hmm. arson which means to light fires and the group was unscrupulously lighting fires in schools and in businesses Jeez. not for money not for revenge just for the sake of causing trouble this sadistic impulse at that early an age might only grow into something more heinous which many argue it did often the sadistic impulse manifested into calls to the cops by max himself he used to ask the responders why they were delayed in responding to the very fires he had ignited in later letters he details his actions and motivations quote we'd go over and break into them and take the money there were also times when we just went out and did stupid things like stealing cars arson smash and grabs and stuff like that at the time we didn't think of the consequences we were just trying to impress one another i think that we were just scared of not being in the group if we didn't go along end quote it was in 1993 that the spree of unhinged violence and vandalism was put to a stop the authorities nabbed the group including max and charged him with 83 crimes 83 independent events of arson violence break-ins or some other crime wow. 83 that number stood out to the judge presiding over the case as well 
the group had been caught because they lit a police station on fire, causing $365,000 worth of damages. The reason? Because one of the gang members was given, get this, a traffic ticket. They what? thought they could burn the evidence of the traffic ticket by burning, by burning the police the station. station? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, for his multiple crimes, the judge gave him nine years in jail and called his crimes, quote, a display of lawlessness on a grand scale. Absolutely. End quote. The 23-year-old was imprisoned. In jail, he was assigned a psychiatrist, Dr. Tony Robinson. It was ascertained that Max suffers from personality problems and significant signs of psychopathy. Dr. Robinson also discovered that the delinquency was related to Max's desire of becoming a cop himself. When he failed to do so, in order to prove his competence and superiority, he liked outsmarting the very people he wanted to become. Although he was sentenced to nine years, his good behavior made him eligible for parole in 1996. He wrote in a letter, quote, I'm not proud of what I did. I never will be. I can't change the past, but I can make sure it never happens again. I won't commit any crimes again. I know that for sure. I stopped associating with my co-accused and my old friends a long time ago. End quote. And do we know whether or not he actually meant this? Or was this just a letter to try and appease the authorities and try and get lesser sentences and time out? The optimist in me goes, I think he might have meant it in the moment. But the thing mm-hmm. with psychopaths is they're so cunning and so sly. They know yeah, what to say, know. when to say. So you never know. Folks like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, yeah. they've apologized several times and then gone on to commit actions. But yep. instead of instead of psychoanalyzing his intentions, we're soon going to get to them. And you will find out for yourself whether he meant them. When he returned home, Max was a new man. Or not. Actually, he was not a new man. He just knew what to say and when to say it. Good behavior doesn't make you good if your intentions aren't in the right place. For a year, it seemed like Max was living by what he wrote in those letters to his parole officer. He got an actual job at a computer company. He married the woman he'd been dating and also became a father. Things seemed to be going well for a year. Then, like a heroin addict chasing the dragon's tail, he succumbed to his sadistic impulses. Within a year of being out on parole, Max Seeker was back at it. He reached out to the same schoolmates to reignite the charade. One of my favorite quotes applies here. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Whether it was (laughs) Max's influence on his company or the other way around, the group of friends were up to no good. In October of 1997, he concocted a plan to take revenge from someone that had angered him. Along with a friend, he tossed a Molotov cocktail, a tool of arson used in urban and gang wars, at a flat in the inner city West End. Not soon after, he found himself back in prison. His wife Sarah wasn't putting up with this. She divorced him almost immediately. Good for her. Good for her. Single, young, unsuccessful and in prison, Max was assigned another psychologist to evaluate just what was wrong with this dude. Going through Dr. Ian Atkinson's evaluations, written in 1999, offers a scathing insight into Max's personality. 
Quote, this man quite clearly produces most of the symptomatology of a borderline personality disorder, mixed with some features of Italian family loyalty. What is very clear is that this man comes from a very dysfunctional family. There were clearly lots of episodes of severe conflict between his father and his mother, resulting in her having a considerable amount of psychiatric treatment. His father was apparently aggressive towards the prisoner and, at times, threatened to kill him and other members of the family when he lost control of his temper. End quote. According to psychiatrist Dr. Ian Curtis, who had assessed Sika in Woodford Prison in 1998 at the request of Sika's lawyers, quote, Max presented as a disturbed individual in the sense of having a major malformation of his personality structure with ongoing difficulties with his inner controls and with his social limits. This is a clinical presentation of gross immaturity with a relative lack of internal mental structures for self-regulation. His gross personality problems from a psychological backdrop which explains, in my view, the type of offending and the chaotic nature of his crimes. End quote. This was... Ishwara, this is the assessment by his very lawyer's psychologist, which says a lot yep, about his personality. The police had a psychopath who presently was behind bars. The Sydney Herald reported that Rosanna Passarelli, Sika's elder sister, said he was an insecure child who, quote, used to daub on everyone, but had always been protective and respectful of women. My brother is a very good-looking man, Right. But he didn't use women. Women would climb up to his balcony and he'd find them in his room. They'd say, I want to be with you. And he'd go, look, I respect you. Just go home. Okay, so is this kind of a caricature she's trying to build of him? Or is this accurate? Is this actually what it was like? Because, I don't know, just the image of women climbing up your balcony and that level of affection, but a man completely unhinged by all of it, but disrespectful to everyone else in society, just seems problematic and not true. Ashwara, whether or not Sika's sexual humility is true, I mm-hmm. must say he is one good-looking fellow. He has oh, he that is. Yep. Ted Bundy suave and persona around I him, agree. but he's even more handsome. He's what they call a good-looking bloke. And it's <laughs> not surprising that Neelma fell for him at first glance. Even though the Sikas and the Singhs were neighbours since the 1990s, The reason Max had only met Neilman in 2001 when mom had asked him to come and fix the computer was because he was doing rounds in prison until then. But once they met, the fiery passion spurned. Their destinies converged for better or for worse. Their love story followed up until April 22nd, 2003, when Neilma was found dead. With his criminal history in the hands of Constable Green and the lead investigators, Max became suspect number one. Or rather, Max declared to the media he was suspect number one. A criminal history isn't sufficient to convict someone of a crime. There needs to be evidence linking him to that particular crime, the murder of the Singh siblings. Frankly, the police didn't have that evidence. Which is why it was surprising that in any and every media interview which Max gave willingly to anyone with a mic and a camera, he kept insisting that he's the primary suspect. Feels to me a bit like a rendition of Chor Ki Dari Metinka, but instead a mole in the murderer's beard. But moles and metaphors aren't enough for the police to convict anyone, let alone Max. The largest investigation, consequently, was underway in Queensland. 
The search for the diary and jewellery proved futile. Raids on the Sikhs yielded nothing. But while one search was wasted, another bore fruit. After 10 days, the weapon of murder was discovered behind the barbecue. A garden fork. Imagine a trident attached to a broomstick. Bloodstains were found all over it. Autopsy reports revealed the cause and timing of death. The cause varied depending on the victim, but all three suffered from injury to the head caused by the garden fork. The first to die was Neelma, who died from blunt force trauma. Likewise for Siddhi, who was killed in her parents' bedroom where she was asleep with the lights on because she was scared of ghosts. Little did the poor girl know that it was humans she should fear more. The last to die was Kunal. He too suffered head trauma, but signs of drowning were observed in the post-mortem. So does that mean he was possibly alive when the bodies were taken to the washroom? He most certainly was. All three bodies were dragged to the bathtub and disposed there. Kunal was alive until that point, although unconscious. He died when placed in the tub and drowned. Oh my god. The timing however of the murders is tough to ascertain primarily because the tap in the bath was left open hot water kept pouring out for hours catalyzing the decomposition of the bodies the murder took place roughly between 10 pm on sunday 20th april to 7 am 21st april the following monday but this timeline isn't set in stone central to the investigation to frankly any investigation nowadays is DNA evidence and the police suspected that if it was Max his DNA should be all over the place except it wasn't not only was it impossible to find Max's DNA DNA forensics proved difficult anyway since the linen and the bodies had all been doused in that very chemical ashwara that we referred to earlier bleach a chemical agent known for its property to decompose DNA This wasn't going to be a straightforward investigation. A new crime required novel techniques, a lot of digging and a whole lot of patience. Of the DNA the police was able to find in the house, some 300 profile over the course of months were retrieved and they wow. approached every single person and eliminated all those possibilities since each had a solid alibi. What is surprising to me is that Max's DNA just wasn't in the house and why that's surprising mm-hmm. is because the police soon uncovered that while Vijay and Shirley were in Fiji Max was visiting Neelma on the 13th 15th and 17th of April after 10:30 p.m. Neelma gave him a ring on his phone a code word between the two meaning it's all clear that the siblings are asleep he would then leave his car which was parked nearby and enter the house through a back door On all three nights they had sex. The fact that 300 DNA profiles were found in that house but not Max's just doesn't make any sense to me. So maybe weird. maybe if they had sex on the same bed linen that was bleached perhaps that explains it. But over three nights spread over a week I mean that doesn't I, I would think enough. she would like, cheat here. Yeah. Exactly there are like door handles and glasses of water that he could have possibly drank like there is just so much in a house that someone touches when they're so there much just in regularly a house. yeah yeah and that that that's one detail that doesn't add up and which is why it makes me go it, it can either really increase the value of dna evidence or mm-hmm. just it becomes irrelevant because if it's not present despite max saying he was there 
right does it matter if max was the murderer or not and is the if the dna is present there it's a confusing little detail that i couldn't fully process but that's yeah. why the dna evidence is not central to this investigation nevertheless the police had to keep on digging the more they dug the more they found So Shweta, you remember how after Vijay and Max's fight, the one where they got physical and the cops were called, yep. and any chances of Neelma and Max dating simply vanished, right? Mhm. The Singhs even moved to another residence after that for their security. Once that happened, Neelma seemed to be moving on. In fact, if you remember, she had had sex with Viru when she visited Fiji and she bonded with him. They continued talking on the phone even when she was back in Australia. And Max was moving on as well I think getting a girlfriend and dating but that was all a farce he wasn't over Neelma in fact when in January 2003 just a few months before the murder he found out she slept with Viru he completely lost the plot he called Viru and threatened him in fact one day Max drove by the Singh's new residence and shouted at Shirley quote Do you know that Viru has been fucking your daughter? End quote. Oh my god. Neelma figured that Max had used his IT skills to hack into her email, which is how he found out all of this. This was an obsessive man. When Neelma continued her correspondence with Viru, another email from guess which email address Ashwara, raj@hotmail.com was shared with the Indo-Fijian community. This time it contained nudes of Neelma and these weren't photoshopped she knew that because these were pictures she had sent to Max but Max denied any responsibility and promised her he would find this raj guy and bring him to justice This man is crazy Of course Ashwara Neelma was in dumb she knew so. what was up and distanced herself from Max even more In fact, the police later in their investigation found a computer at Max's residence which was signed into of course raj raj at, at hotmail.com. Hotmail. Yeah. Raj was Max. He was culturally appropriating brown people. <laughs> he knew he had messed up and in a final ditch effort concocted the cancer story. That was a lie too. Oh my god. On March 15th, 2003, He texted oh. Neelma, "It's hard to tell you everything when you keep hanging up. I have some stuff I really need to speak to you about. I haven't got long left, Nim. I'm sick." End quote. If coercion didn't get Neelma back, he hoped pity would. And pity worked. Worried that someone so close to her is going to die of quote fourth stage brain cancer, Neelma rekindled her friendship with Max. she began writing prayers for him and they began having sex again we'll start it max also began communicating with get this amit lala do you do you remember amit ashwara uh, the first boyfriend yeah yeah amit neelma's first boyfriend the one for which vijay had brutally beaten her up yeah i remember max for some reason and it gets convoluted here i almost wanted to skip this detail because it makes the case so confusing but it's so arbitrary that i was like i think the listeners must know of this max arranged a meeting with amit lala urging him to get back with neelma and confessing that he was gay and What? dated neelma only to shroud himself from his conservative father 
Of course, that's a lie. What? Max wasn't gay. This was some kind of a move to show how benevolent he was even on his deathbed. Frankly, it's so nonsensical that even the cops upon uncovering it didn't know what to make of it. Max arranged a meeting with Amit Lala urging him to get back with Neelma and confessing what? that he was gay and dated Neelma only to shroud himself from his conservative father. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on. So Max got in touch with Neelma's first ever boyfriend. Mhm. Asked this first ever boyfriend to get back together with Neelma. Uh-huh. And then told him to tell Neelma that Max was gay. Something on those lines. Um he did he did ask uh, Amit Lala the first boyfriend to start dating Neelma again. Why I honestly have no idea. And then as an excuse as a justification of why he dated Neelma afterwards his excuse was i was gay and she was a shroud protecting me from but my father but why was he trying to make an excuse at all uh, no idea L- literally no idea like i went digging and even the cops were like now nah, we have no idea this was just this is so this weird this is a rambling man coming up with lies that somehow makes him seem benevolent ishwara i like frankly this was some kind of a move to show how benevolent he was even on his deathbed and there's no way that max could be gay because we know he he's had a wife he has a child and we know that that doesn't stop anyone from being gay we've covered enough desi cases like that but still yeah. everything we know nothing points to him actually being gay he's not gay i this can assure you this is completely he's random he's not gay it's just it's it's random it's so this random that's why i was like sense. i want to leave it out i don't want to confuse the listener but it's so arbitrary it's like he dreamt of this one day and he's like you know what today I'll i'm just, gay. i'll just I'm talk just, about I'm this in my real life i think this I, i'll so tell weird. amit lala my ex's first boyfriend that i'm gay let's just strike up a random call it makes Whack. no oh sense frankly it's so nonsensical that even the cops upon uncovering it didn't know what to <laughs> make bet. of it but with all this information at hand the cops have a pretty decent circumstantial case against max but that wouldn't be enough they need some kind of a hard evidence dna is out of the picture no witnesses either Max's parents maintain that he was playing a video game with his younger brother on Easter night at 10:30 p.m. The police then discover the final two texts Neelma ever sent. The first one was at 8 p.m. to Max. The message read, "Well, see you later tonight and then chat. I think I am coming down with something. Feeling a day before you get sick. Will give the one ring." The one ring was their secret code. Then her final text was to her eldest sister Sonia at 8:30 p.m. It is perhaps the most chilling final words Ashwarya I have come across on Desi Crime. Quote, I have to go. There is someone at the door. End quote. That's the last anybody ever heard from Neelma. Oh, okay. So Aran, an important question here. She texted Max at 8 p.m. saying she's going to see him later that night. Mm-hmm. And then 30 minutes later at 8:30 she sends this chilling text saying someone was at the door. The fact that she wrote this text at all makes me feel like she didn't know who was at the door like it wasn't Max she expected to be at the door because imagine in your mind just for a second that you've snuck a boyfriend over into your house <laughs> late in the night would you send someone else a text saying oh someone's at my door talk to you later no you just keep quiet about the boyfriend that you're sneaking in the fact that she wrote this text at all makes me feel like she had no idea who was at the door it wasn't supposed to be Max at 8:30 
Ashura, there are one of three possibilities here. Hmm. One is that the person was actually Max and she didn't lie to her sister. She just wanted to tell some somebody is there. But mm-hmm. she didn't want to mention Max because the family wanted to distance themselves from Max. Right. But in that situation, the obvious conundrum is then why tell anybody is there at all? At all, yeah. In which case, um, two possibilities exist. One used by the defense barrister saying, look, here's the evidence that somebody else did it. It wasn't Max Sika. Um, mm-hmm. There's that possibility. Or there's the alternate possibility, which was... She just said it because she wanted to stop talking to her sister and it was just a thing she said. No other person was found at 8.30. So it, it's not sure who exactly that could be. The one thing though is the window of murder that has Max possibly committing it is between 8.30 to 10.30. And this still could be Max. The point being, maybe Max arrived sooner than he was supposed to. Right. You know what I'm saying? That That's the two of them possible. had a conversation of Max coming at whatever, 10, 30, 11 in the night when the right. siblings are asleep. But she was caught off guard because Max actually showed up sooner than he was supposed to and still was involved in the crime. Very possible. And, you know, this gives a two-hour window between which Max could have committed the crime. Yep. But again, this was all circumstantial. It took five years for the police to build a case against Max, which they thought was sufficient to stand trial. This required two key pieces of evidence. One was, and this is the first time I'm coming across it, foot forensics. At the scene of crime, foot marks were found on the bleached floor. Hmm. Forensic specialists from Canada were called to compare Max's footprints to the ones found. Max was made to walk up a set of replica stairs which had been built in the Petrie police station. Police used the same builders who built the stairs at the Sings Bridgem Downs mm-hmm. home. Wow. Even the same carpet was installed. Experts concluded that it wasn't definitive proof, but neither did it rule out Max. The final blow, the breakthrough, came through a woman named Andrea Bowman. Andrea was a childhood friend of the Seekers. After learning what had happened to Max, she felt bad for him and wanted to write a book to help share his side of the story. But what started as a tell-all novel turned into a police insider. Andrea started coordinating with the police. On March 16, 2008, they were doing role-play scenarios in her car to try and understand what had happened. In this particular interaction, Max asked Andrea if she knew how difficult it was to kill someone who was begging for their life, going, quote, please don't, don't, please, end quote. According to the Brisbane Times, quote, Miss Bowman said Seeker had alluded that he was remorseful and would take back that night if he could. She told the court she spoke gently to him, stroking his hair and telling him he was a good person. She said that as she left, Seeker asked, Am I busted? To which she replied, He wasn't. End quote. Unfortunately for Seeker, he was busted. On 3rd July 2012, the jury, after 76 days of a trial followed by 21 hours of deliberation, came to the decision that on all three counts of murder, Massimo Seeker was guilty. He was sentenced to 45 years in jail, where he still is rotting away. Many still disagree with this judgment, and some for understandable reasons. 
the police weren't able to establish a solid motive, nor was there any DNA evidence. The footmark hypothesis isn't the most convincing. And as for Andrea's statement, when she tried to get Max to say the same thing while wearing a wire, he refused to confess. The defense barrister Sam DiCarlo harped about these details. He harped about the Singh's dirty laundry, the mistresses and the threatening calls and how those nasty affairs might have been responsible. But the jury believed the heaps of circumstantial evidence offered by the prosecution and the character assassination done by the media over the years that had gone by since the murder occurred. Aran, I was going to say, as much as we've seen Max turn out to be this shady character over the course of this episode, firstly, we've completely forgotten everything the first episode was set up on, which was a very troubled family in and of itself. And secondly, the fact that at the end of all of this, no matter how shady he seemed, there is no evidence to convict him. There is absolutely no proof in this case. Like, I don't know, this this is absurd to me. I don't even know what to say. Ashwara, I wouldn't say there is no evidence. I think a certain amount of circumstantial evidence can amount to uh, hard evidence. That said, I agree. I think a lot of the role was played by how the media painted him. Um, In fact, at the beginning, uh, Sika's lawyers wanted this to be a judge-only trial because the media had apparently defiled the public sentiment around him, but it was rejected and a jury was set up. And Mm -hmm. the main worry was the jury is already convinced that he's the murderer because the media had been presenting him as such. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is one that troubles me. There is not a lot of hard evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. As much as as the circumstantial evidence paints him to be the culprit. That's what I was trying to say, is that obviously there are these small bits of information and evidence what can be construed to be evidence but what you need in a trial is someone to be proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt and that is simply there is simply not enough evidence for that in this case and that's unfortunate to me according to the jury it was beyond reasonable (laughs) doubt echoing your cries a tormented Anna was seen outside the court wailing incoherently protesting the decision take up evidence the police in this country The Indo-Fijian community came together in a moment of unity and solidarity behind the Sings. This story still haunts that community. Before being imprisoned, Max married his second wife, another Indo-Fijian woman. Many in the community suspect a fetish of some kind. Debates, theories and conspiracies aside, one thing is for certain. On Easter 2003, on a day of celebration, festivities and community, three beautiful souls lost their lives. This year marks the 20th anniversary of their deaths. Tragedy struck when both Vijay and Sonia, the eldest daughter, passed away just a few years ago. Shirley lives alone in that 20 grass tree close Bridgman Downs, Queensland, Australia residence, saying hi to Kunal every time she passes his bedroom or reminisces her kids when she sees that fateful bathtub 
which is now a shrine to her three kids. 